0: So I'd like to pick up on the theme we began this morning with dukkha and soul-making. And as I was sitting here just to begin to ref- to reflect, this um, urge came, which I will enact. Not all urges need to be enacted, but this one I will, um, to say that this talk is in service to... Uh, an imaginal figure who has been around for me that very much relates to Dukkha and soul-making. And it is in service to this divine being. So I first want to acknowledge the Dukkha that is here in the room that you may have brought with you, that may have arisen since you're here, from the acute to the chronic, to the regular old hindrances to meditation and to being on retreat, that sort of rub of of the mind. I want to acknowledge some of the dukkha that I know that's in this room. I won't name people, but I want to acknowledge (coughs) (coughs) at least two people I know here have very recently experienced sudden and tragic deaths of very close ones. I know people who, in this room, dealing with health crises, as well as my dear friend, Rob. that are bringing them close to edges of life and death. I know that my niece, one of my, I say my fa- one of my favorite nieces, I have many nieces, I can call her that because she was born way before all the others, so she, I was only four when she was born. This one, so there was, she was a niece a long time before the others were. That she is currently in a detox center. Went in last Monday, maybe out and then taken to rehab. And when I spoke to her last week, when she was a little bit with it before she went, she said, Kath, I didn't know it could get this bad. I didn't know as I went down that spiral how bad it could get. I want to acknowledge her, and I'm fine to say it on the tape. I'll, I'll check with her, but she's made it quite public <laughs> in our family. And I want to acknowledge the breakups of relationships that are, have happened in this room, and families that are happening, uncertainties, about living situations. And I want to acknowledge all the dukkha I don't know about in this room. We'll all bring our own measure. So please, let's begin in this service of whoever for you, your path is in service to and whatever. Let's begin by acknowledging our very uh, human situations that, that we're asked to handle, asked to bear. and Sometimes it's f- too much to bear. Right? So please feel, fr- feel free, and I invite us all to chant the chant we did on the first night, the Om Mani Padme hung. And bring into the room whoever wants to be brought here. Personal, collective. Yeah, I just have to mention the word collective, and my mind goes to the news and the different dukkhas that are apparent daily. Planetary, cosmic, dukas of soul, dukas of body, dukas of body-soul. Yours, ours, seen and unseen, let chant the chant and let whoever wants to come, come. Making room in our collective space that we offer this and hold all of this in our intention of compassion. And as we chant to let compassion themself, herself, himself, do the service to compassion, to not limit what it means. To have imagination with compassion and not limit her scope, her dimensions his gifts their intelligence so breathing with your body tuning to your heart tuning to the group opening out to the the whole group and remembering the poise of this beautiful image, Kuan Yin here, I would like to, if you haven't noticed her, it's a pretty good posture for compassion, isn't it? She's is the one who hears the cries of the world and in this posture of royal ease, right? She hasn't forgotten the other Brahma Viharas and she probably knows a lot more as well.
1: Om me Padme side, Om Mani Padme a Om Mani Padme padme hum hari om mani padme hum hari
0: as we open the intention and the heart of compassion and the refuge of the brahma viharas what would it mean from this basis from this Having our feet firmly grounded here to open our imagination, our desire, our mind to what might be possible for Dukkha, for our relationship to Dukkha to be restored even more thoroughly to sacredness, to beauty. To meaningfulness, that our dukkha is given a place, a place at the table that can reveal to us dimensions and meaningfulnesses that before were unimaginable. that are intimate that resonate deeply such that our zeal and spirit to serve whoever we are called to serve is revivified and impassioned in new ways so I'd like to name first, just talk about some of the dukkhas that can be surfaced, that can be brought to the surface by engaging in soul-making practice, that you might not have even had to look at before, Um or, you know, it's like, oh, goodness me, I've come to soul-making, there's even more dukkha. If anyone's having that experience, um don't worry. Don't worry, this practice will surface certain kinds of dukkhas that we may not have noticed before. So I'm going to name some of them by engaging with these teachings. There may be dukkas associated with new energies that we are asked to attend to, new emotions and resonances and views and ideas. These can open up realms for us and surface kind of dukkha. I mentioned last night the dukkha around desire, opening up the... What's that lovely talk of yours called? Opening up the Dharma of Desire, right? All of that, opening that whole realm to be resacralized can surface many, many things for us that we may not have looked at when our desire was clearly heading for the unfabricating and the unfabricated. What kinds of things? And I'm not going to go into them all thoroughly. I'm going to give you headlines to know that you're at the table. In case anyone is sitting here thinking, "Hold on, my dukkha is outside of the soul making." Maybe they talk about this, this, and this, and this, but not surely not this bit, right? And hopefully tonight, even if I don't mention you're this bit, hopefully you can get that this you're this bit can also be woven into this eros psychologos dynamic in ways that may have been unimaginable to us before. So this is the trust I offer if you don't have it yet. <laughs> if you don't have it yet. Um, so opening up desire can issue bring up issues around frustration, the frustrated desire that we may not have had to look at when we just put our desire for things away right suddenly we were allowed to have desire again and then it's like but i want it and then all of the frustration of not getting all of the senses of lack all of the senses of i'm not worthy to have the thing or all of the senses of that thing should give it to me why doesn't it any of you ever get that <laughs> either more entitled sense or a more deficient sense all of those kind of binaries around desire, they may surface. And we can attend, we can acknowledge. Sometimes we need to look into and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we can acknowledge and bow and recognize that that has arisen, that we've done our work there, some of us. And we may be able... Ooh, I was getting so excited about Duker and soul making, my earphone fell off. There we go. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. The rage at not getting what I want. Does that come up for anybody? Um, the, the issues of confusing the image of what we want with the truth of what should happen. Right? Not seeing image as image. Forgetting that it's empty. Because once I allow the desire to arise, I might forget everything I know about emptiness because I really have to have that thing. Right? Because it's powerful. Because it's powerful. So we're having to put our feet deeper into the timeless soil of our Dhamma to handle and work with this. There can be issues then with the, with the eros of shutting it down, muting it, dampening it. Issues can surface around being seen, seeing and being seen. I say issues, but they're not just issues. They're things that can unfold into soul scape, not just self scape, right? If we, um, this too can be redeemed. Sometimes we have such a tricky, tricky relationship with the need to be seen. And we're either sh- ashamed that we want to be seen or we think we should want to be seen and they should see us and It's such a need for our soul to be seen and to see. Soul wants to see and be seen. But it can be redeemed from that narrowing, that tightening, that awful desperation around it to something again restored to dimensions of depth that may have been unimaginable to us, that relieve the ego pressure to have to get the thing we think we need to get. Issues can surface around that may not have come in our Dhamma so far, they may have, around the words and concepts and histories and associations with divinities, soul, sacredness, God, gods, divinities. Right? All kinds of history associations, um, that may arise that we wanted to acknowledge here. I won't name them all, but I've seen in the, just the last couple of days, um, you know, an image can arise and it does feel divine for someone. And they, I've seen a number of times that sense of, oh, it's it's too beautiful, I don't deserve it. Right. I'm not, I'm not up to it. I'm not up to the task. Can bring our sense of unworthiness. Someone today with a beautiful image that was very divine for them, naming that, that first it, it, it started to become imaginal. It was on its way to becoming imaginal. And at a certain point, then they said, Oh, craving is arising. Oh, what's happening? And they said, oh, there's a sense that I'm not equal to this one. I'm not equal to this one. As if I should become them. As if I should be um, a good match for this. So a kind of comparing mind with the image arose. And what we can see there is the self-sense hadn't yet become woven into the eros Psyche logos dynamic with that figure. That was the next step to happen. The image felt full of dimensions, but the self-sense was still real at that point. Issues around um, many, 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 I, I, I'll just name a few, around value, our value and our work. It's a really interesting one. You know we have a lot in our psychologies about self-worth and the importance of self-worth, and some really, really good work there. But the self is rarefied in that version of the story. And it may not be complete. the work may not be complete or have the depth of dimension that our soul really seeks. And here I want to bring in a bit of religious history just to give an example of where, you know, in a sense our worth isn't our worth. In a sense, none of it's mine. If there's value here, it's not mine. How do we understand anatta in relation to this question of worth and worthiness with the importance of my self-worth and self-worth and how important that is? In the religious piece of history, I want to bring a personal piece. There was always a, a, I was brought up as a Catholic, as a Roman Catholic, and um, there was always a piece in the mass that always puzzled me. And there was a lot of meaningfulness and resonance for me as a child um, in that uh, kind of incredible divine theater that's there, right? There was a piece uh, which some of you might remember or know, maybe it's still very uh, resonant for you, just before you are admitted to receive the body of Christ, right, which in the Catholic isn't an image or a symbol. It is the body of Christ, right? Just before you receive the body of Christ, you say a prayer. And the prayer always puzzled me, and the prayer was, And I think it comes from the New Testament. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. But only say the word and I shall be healed. I want to put in brackets. There's, of course, an incredible trickiness there. (laughs) Right. Yes, if the Logos has split the sky and the earth and that I am inherently sinful and there's something wrong with the fact that I was conceived, there's a problem with the Logos and my sense of unworthiness. Right? There's a problem there. But that's not the only Logos. And I don't think that's the deeply mystical Logos that's there. The framework around that As a child there, it had a lot of resonance for me. There was depths and dimensions to that that I didn't understand and still didn't understand for a very, very long time. But something in that conversation where the tender humanness of our heart is in conversation with the more than me Right there, we could bow and say, yes, none of me belongs to anyone but you. I am not my own. My worth is given. My value is given in the moment that I am connected to that dimensionality of soul and sacredness. I'm going to read you a story from somebody who uh, gave me permission to share this. The story of their practice of working with Dukkha last week. And it's not completed, but if you listen with the ears of what you can hear about Eros, Psyche, and Logos. The ideas, the frameworks that this person has, the Eros, and where Dukkha can start to become Psyche where we can go from either trying to dissolve the Dukkha or binding around the Dukkha to relating to the Dukkha in such a way that she, it, they become Psyche for our Eros. This person writes, I feel I'm being asked to choose between two things I want and love deeply. I want them both. I feel it's possible and even necessary to have them both, but others seem to think otherwise. I feel I'm being asked to compromise my freedom and my dedication to what I most deeply value in order to have to conform, belong and serve. There's a rub here and the entities doing the rubbing feel quite solid and fixed and the options feel quite limited. Can you, so you can see the predicament? Everything starts to narrow and this person's mind and options start to go out of the picture. There's no thinking outside, no imagination. It's like, it's like this, right? I want this. They say, I can't have it. I want it. The options feel quite limited. And then the person says, start with the rub. What? And then a question arises. What if this is exactly the suffering your soul needs for the alchemy that is ready to happen in and through and with you? So this person was asking themselves this question. What if this is exactly the suffering your soul needs for the alchemy that is ready to happen in and through and with you? For the beauty of your soul is, for the beauty your soul is ready to make and become host to. The person reports. There is a sense of static in the heart and right up to the throat. So the person says, start with the rub and senses this sense of static in the heart and up into the throat. The sensations are mildly unpleasant, but I've seen it enough times, the ways that that struggle and difficulty can open up in beauty when they are sensed with trust. And there is a willingness to trust this static, to let it have its life and a curiosity about where it can go. An image constellates of one of those transparent spheres with visible currents of electricity in them. Remember those? like With visible currents of electricity running from the center to the edges. Can you see that sphere with the electricity running right to the edges? Baby bolts of lightning able to move in any direction responding to touch. There is a felt sense of charge at the center of my chest, and the edges of the surrounding sphere are flexible. They expand and contract and expand again through the energy body, as I feel into the tangible sense of space within the sphere. I am moved by this image, by the intelligence and the flexibility and the lack of inhibition I can feel in the fingers of electricity the way they move without hesitation toward the touch of fingers on the outer surface of the sphere. So what that person means is, as they sense this in their body, they could place their attention anywhere in their energy body, right? At any point, and the electricity would run out to that spot. They could touch with their attention there, and the electricity would run out to there the way they move without hesitation towards the touch of fingers on the outer surface of the sphere, the way they want to meet and be met by other hands, by the hands of the other. There is an unmitigated, unmeasured quality to these electric blue veins. Something forthright and unabashed about them touches me. They don't diminish themselves for fear of their power, and they don't harm those who reach to touch them. They don't hide or strategize or evade. They simply move purely without hesitation toward the touch of the other. So this started to have echoes in this person's life and probably many of our lives, right? So hear that part, who, who has that desire for their soul. They don't diminish themselves for fear of their power and they don't harm those who reach to touch them. They don't hide, or strategize, or evade. They move simply, purely, without hesitation. And the space within the sphere, which has now expanded to hold the whole of my energy body, is alive with subtle texture, bathing my body with a sense of gentle charge, a kind of subtle cellular nourishment, a womb-like resonance. As I continue sensing into the image, and its resonances in the energy body, the sense of both the sphere and my body within it grow quite large, monumental and diffuse, while the feeling of charge at the centre of my chest grows fine, delicate, intricately crafted, a miniature electrical storm, small enfoldings of celestial dust. I have the sense that I could zoom in forever and never come to the end of these clouds of light and shadow. There is something quite beautiful to me about this contrast, the sense of spreading and harmonized grandeur of the sphere and my body in relationship with the fineness, the specificity, the small and elaborate complexity of the electrical celestial light cloud at the center. And then this person reports the pattern. See what you can hear here. And despite, or perhaps because of the beauty, I begin to feel or fear myself unequal to it all, incapable of meeting these gorgeous othernesses, of being what I think they need me to be. Can you hear the way the self starts to be familiar senses of herself? And when this way of seeing happens, right, so she starts to diminish... The sense of the light cloud at the center of my heart begins to solidify into a hard, unyielding jewel, receding backward in the space of my body as the sphere withdraws forward and away from me. This collapse is familiar. Right? I'm not worthy. I'm not up to the task, image goes. This collapse is familiar has happened many times before, but instead of giving my attention to the sense of the lacking self that has begun to constellate, I tune into my longing for the image, for the mystery and beauty I have been visited by, for my desire to continue in deepening relationship with it. Don't go, I whisper. I love you. I love the way you I love the way my inner landscape lights up in the mystery and unfathomable otherness when I come into contact with you. Can you start to hear the belovedness here? I love the way my inner landscape lights up in mystery and unfathomable otherness when I come into contact with you. It's beginning to sound like falling in love. I love the way you set off resonances in my soul that start it unfolding unstoppably, revealing more and more of its beauty and complexity to my astonished gaze. And as I say this and feel this, the otherness and my desire for it take up resonance, residence in my own body that the otherness, the thing that was the image that had receded and my desire for it, take up residence in my own body. A strong and insistent fire in my pelvis, flames of heat and warmth and pleasure licking up through the space of my torso, intertwining with a vaguely sensed forest of trees or vines or kelp, a landscape of my soul. And the clear, delighted perception, Eros and Psyche are in me, twining together, all up through the space of my body, and then an image constellates. Now it becomes really imaginal. Eros and Psyche in bed together, and I am the bed, the room, the house, and the earth that holds them is host to them. And then the person didn't get to finish all their writing. I think at, at, at that point, I, I was with them and I asked them, so how does the issue look from here? The things you wanted. Now that eros and psyche are in the bedroom inside of you. How does these things you want, how do they appear from here? And the person said, that thing that I wanted now constellates as a soap bubble. Beautiful and with a sense of minute, complex interiority, like a microcosmos. And Eros and Psyche are loving and marveling at the bubble. So can you see the thing that they wanted? It's more empty. It's not as important. It's less, it's less charged in their Psyche once Eros and Psyche have taken resonance, All right? So here's the interesting thing, there's an understanding of the emptiness, in a sense, of the thing I have to have, right? It appears as a soap bubble, beautiful, and with a sense of minute, complex interiority, like a microcosmos, and Eros and Psyche loving and marveling at the bubble, and me loving that the room contains them all. And then, the person says, you, which is me, I was with them. And then when you asked me to open my eyes and see what the world looks like, knowing what I am host to, then the feeling came. I can go anywhere and do anything when the sense of these two is inside of me, a sense of freedom and of wealth. There is a deep desire to serve them, to hold them, to be the place where they meet. And I feel myself energized and empowered by the perception that I hold them within me. So there you can see the dukkha softened. What she had to have lost some of its charge. The options opened. The mind opened, more different kinds of communication and options became available. And actually, I don't, I I'll, maybe will tell you next week what the punchline was and whether she got them or not. <laughs> Chapter two coming soon. So, what else would be good to know tonight? Hmm. I think it's a little bit like Rob this morning. Let's see. Maybe tonight it can just be some pointers. I have really way more material than can be shared usefully, I think. Don't want to overload the psyche here. Maybe I'll give you the headlines of places that you can look for where when you come into dukkha in this retreat because you surely will soul making doesn't mean that dukkha doesn't arise not at all we want to really see and redeem the place of dukkha in unimaginable ways right but these are some of the headlines that you can look out for when it's not happening when you feel stuck where you're banging against the same door with the same kind of dukkha Okay. Logos, look at your Logos, what ideas do you have about Dukkha? What ideas are operating about Dukkha that might be limiting it becoming soulful for you? What ideas keep the Dukkha stuck or might even be creating more Dukkha for you? Some ideas we can just let cease. We don't have to go into them, they can just drop. Like the kinds of ideas of the Papancha ideas about why I'm in Dukkha. If you're spinning in your mind, same rules apply as in our all of our Dharma training. You're spinning in Dukkha and the mind is saying, and he did that. And he's going to pay for it. Does your mind ever do that? (laughs) Or maybe silently, quietly underneath. Right, when we're in the spin, some of those ideas, we can bring our sword, we can drop, we can let go of, we can sense. Okay, so don't forget our regular training of being able to drop something is really, really important. And some ideas that support dukkha may be helpful, but we may think they are the only thing I have to do, right? So, for example, um, oof. example or just headlines. Example, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so, for example, a really useful, a really brilliant, and I am indebted to a training in trauma therapy. I have been trained in and worked with and needed and all of those things, and I am indebted and grateful. But if every time a certain kind of vortex of suffering appears in my soul and I think, okay, The only way I can handle this is through that kind of therapy. I might be limiting something. So yes, there's a place absolutely for certain modalities that we may need to attend to. But if it's become my go-to and only and my lens narrows, and that's what it is, and it is trauma, and I've reified that, and this is the way you have to deal with it, then I will very soon lose the soulfulness. Okay, that's a really that's an important example. Let's acknowledge that there is always an idea about dukkha. You don't not have ideas about dukkha. You will be bringing a logos made up of all kinds of things about dukkha. So what are the logoses that you might need to confess up to that are coming to the table when you come to sit? One logos, the standard worldly logos around dukkha about its cause, about the path to the end of it and the best way to the end of it. Dukkha is, what is it? It's bad. shouldn't be there, should it? Definitely shouldn't be there. It's bad, it's horrible, it's a mistake, it should be avoided and the cause of it is too many unpleasant things. Too many unpleasant things is the cause of Dukkha, and the way to the end of Dukkha is to try and get the balance right between the number of pleasant things and unpleasant things. Right? So we might laugh, but like, but do we bring that to the table sometimes? (laughs) Yes, please. Yeah, just like a little bit less, more of the pleasant things. Thank you. We can have bits of classical Dharma mixed up with other kinds of Logos. Check yours out, because your soul will have its own ways that it's framing up the Dukkha that it sees. And see if you can get wise to the the Logos you're bringing. Because the Logos you're bringing will shape what you see. It will arise dependent on the ideas you have about the Dukkha. This is really exciting. And if our mindfulness, as our mindfulness deepens, we can surface and see, oh wow, I was limiting it this way. For example, suffering is not bad, in classical Dharma. It's not bad, there's no moral judgment about suffering, nobody's fault, all right? That's a blessed relief for most of us, right? So I don't have that view, but there's a cause for the dukkha, which is clinging, and clinging's a bit bad, right? We can can start, if we have that little tendency to narrow, we might do that. So the dukkha's all right, but it's showing about the clinging, and the clinging is bad. So we get on the case of clinging all the time. And we're like we're on the case for clinging. And if you have those eagle eyes for clinging, there's a clinging bad. Stop clinging, you know, and I'm painting it grossly just now, but really just check out what the um logos is for you. If we have the sense that clinging is bad and the suffering that results, we may start to um develop a distaste for suffering and avoid, start to avoid situations where suffering arises, right? This can be a classical kind of spiritual um, ego, in a sense. To There's a distaste for the kind of grossness of the suffering, so I just keep away from that because I feel ba- bound in suffering, and being bound is not where it's at. Being unbound is where it's at, so I'm not going to go anywhere where I feel bound. But can you see the limit? The limit to our life, the limit to the soul that's there, really limiting. So we might have, suffering's not bad, but it does tend to get us a little bit complex and in a bit of a mess. And actually, simplicity is better. Simplicity is the dogma, not complexity. So I keep leaning in to widening, softening, unbinding, unfabricating because I have a distaste for complexity. I have a privileged place for simplicity unquestioned in my spiritual Logos, right? Another extreme view could be around Logos of Dukkha could be, ah, suffering is the point. Suffering is the point. Didn't Buddha say suffering is the point? There is suffering. Understand suffering, stand with it. But if we narrow around that being the point, then what can happen with our relationship with soulfulness? It can be that every time any inkling of dukkha arises, anything unpleasant, any unpleasant emotion, any thought in my mind that looks like dukkha, I go, I go right to it. I've got to explore dukkha. I'm supposed to explore Dukkha, here it is, great, I've got some. And we, uh, we turn over every stone, so thorough, and it's sincere, it's a sincere, sincere, sincere orientation. But every time anything that sniffs of Dukkha, we turn it over and stick our nose in it. And the soulfulness is limited. We might not see what else is in the neighborhood. We can never be accused of bypassing. We would never be accused of spiritual bypassing, but we might miss the neighborhoods of soul that are around. So take a look when you're stuck, you feel stuck with the dukkha, what logos might be operating. Ideas of divinities you know we inherit an idea I read recently in the whole Greek system that and you know you see these like this statue of David for example um, later but these sort of beautiful icons of perfection that are given that divinity is perfect and perfect means not having impediments so impediments are in the way of my. Relationship with the sacredness. Can you see that? We think the dukkha, the thing in us that looks like the impediment is in the way because divinity is perfect and perfect means without impediment. It's a story. It's a story. It's a story. What if our impediments, impediment is like a shackle that binds our ped, our foot, a shackle that binds our foot to earth. What if our impediments are not an indication of the absence of divinity at all, but that we have a different narrative that we can enter with what looks like impediment. The logos that suffering is wrong and somebody is to blame for it. We have inherited the Western story, as I understand it, is premised on a creation myth our creation myth from the old testament which apparently in the history of humans is the first creation myth where someone is to blame for suffering nobody blamed anyone for suffering suffering is suffering someone was to blame for suffering right first adam no whichever order it goes in adam even the snake and they're all implicated right right see where we pick up that that's such a strong knee-jerk response in us it's, it's, it's it's because you said that it's because you looked at me that way it's because I'm doing something wrong it's because I'm failing at my can we see in that moment oh I'm in that cultural myth here someone's to blame for suffering oh that already gives it another dimension it may not be imaginal yet but it stretches it out, relieves us, and gives us some room. Gives us some room for our soul. We need a bigger logos for our suffering. Bigger, more beautiful, more interesting. James Hillman talks about this modern, one of the modern crisis of numbing ourselves, numbing our souls, which he calls anesthesia right? The, the, the loss of ca- the capacity to feel. And the asthesia is the beauty, is the beauty. So here he says, numbing our soul, and we have to numb it because it is hell to experience suffering in terms of only individual self or a meaningless cosmos. He says, suffering is not only mediated by beauty. It is made beautiful by the context we put it in. A beautiful reading of the cosmos. Pain can be included in a beautiful conception of things. So I am going to skip... (laughs) We've both collected lots of extra things about dukkha and soul making. I'm gonna skip that piece and maybe it can come and maybe maybe it can't. You want it all. Have your wanting and delight in I delight in your wanting. <laughs> I delight in it, yeah. But isn't that? Isn't that, I remember on uh, uh, the last retreat that here, the Hermits and Lovers one in a small group, someone saying something, but but I want it all, right? Not in relation to our talk, but just in one of the small groups and that person is here and remembering, I want it all. And it's like, can you let yourself want it all? What's it like to want it all? Freedom and all of the incredible richness that can come. That you may be really deeply into or you're just intuiting is possible here. Right? Want it all. Want it all. I think I'm gonna, this will take a few more minutes. I'm gonna end with uh, another example. And it's the example of the one I was offering the talk to tonight. So this is, this is an example from me. And as you listen, Listen with as much of yourself as you can. Listen for Logos, where it gets limited, where it gets opened. Listen for Psyche, where the Dukkha becomes Psyche, where it doesn't become Psyche. Listen for Eros. Listen for Eros. Listen for Divinities. Listen for the flattening of divinities. There's a kind of dukkha when we flatten our soulscape. And it might not be anything terrible is going on, but we flatten our connection with those multiple dimensions. That's its own dukkha. That's its own dukkha, the dryness, the soullessness, the... Listen for the flattening. and Listen for the different ways of working, just as in the first example. I wanna preface it with um, the kinds of dukkha that probably most of us in this room may experience, the kinds of recurring dukkhas. Not the dukkhas that have dropped away in our practice over time, but the dukkhas or the shapes that we may be all too familiar with, that have their own kind of repeat. <laughs> and what happens with those in our practice? How can we practice with them? Firstly, we have to recognize them. And really own our duk- own dukkha as dukkha. When we stop blaming or p- apportioning it out, own dukkha as dukkha. Yes, of course there are things we need to address in this world, absolutely. But can we take responsibility for our measure of dukkha that we are asked to attend to? And I start with an example of one of my teachers, um, a, a really beautiful man, monk for 40 years, I think. And he his, he came to my house a few years ago, and I said, in his monk's robes, and I opened the door, and I welcomed him, and I really, really love him very much. And I said, how are you? And he said, and he's very statuesque and big and solid looking, and he said, ah, and he was pointing to his midline. He was going, hmm, just sensing that, that wondering if I'm welcome here, right? Right? Now, you don't need to feel sorry for him, (laughs) and maybe you weren't. Maybe it was a recognition. It wasn't pulling on me. He wasn't saying, now you have to welcome me. Neither was he hiding from that kind of sensitivity. This is one of what he would call a precious flaw, F-L-A-W, floor. The thing that looks like the mistake that maybe isn't the mistake. The precious floor, right, that keeps him humble and keeps him with a possible doorway to divinity. So as he said that to me, I um I didn't feel pulled on like oh oh no you're really really welcome not at all it was more this upright timeless kind of hmm I see just wondering it's that old thing it very transparent like it was kind of shot through with love and space and all of that it's a kind of a wearing out of that sankara in a way but the shape might still arise let's see what might be possible with those ones for soulfulness. So here's an example of that. A familiar shape for the dukkha arises today, a place I am prone and vulnerable to hurt, like a weakness in the membrane of my heart. I am predisposed to reading a scenario of rejection, a scenario of not being wanted. And I could tell you a thousand stories of causes and conditions. Noticing self-rejection arising in several subtle forms and noticing a correlation with an energetic congestion in my heart. My head subtly turning away from myself, from my heart, from my sensitivity, turning away from my range of ways of sensing and knowing. And at the same time, a papancha starts to spin the story that I am unwanted, that I have been rejected and that the other, whoever they were that particular day, doesn't want me. I know this. I meet it with love and care. And I had the question, I wonder, can this dukkha be seen in ways that are not only able to dissolve the dukkha and relieve the suffering, but in a way that might be soul-making? Can this Dukkha be sensed in ways that are, but are not only resonant and empathetic and able to pulsate along with the hurt and the one who believes she is unwanted in all the compassionate ways that I have practiced and appreciate? Might there be a way of relating to this suffering that brings more richness and beauty? Might there be ways of perceiving here where this shape, and the particularity of this dukkha is retained somewhat, where the suffering is given place and open to more dimensions. How much loosening and what kind of attending might be needed for this? The question seemed to have the effect of softening and loosening the tightness in my chest, And the bundle of hardness of energetic and emotional congestion and the self-image of being unwanted started to unravel a little bit. The hurting spot in my heart changed from unwanted to distress. The emotional tone of distress. And I listened carefully to the cries echoing through the mind and the body. And I heard the familiar cry. I can't do this. Ah, I recognize this. The emotion of distress with the self-image coming with it of feeling deficient. I can't do this, whatever it was. I can't do it, feeling deficient. With a light lens of Vedana in the background. Yes, this is unpleasant. Giving some more room. I soften further and I hear another. No! Don't! Go away! Ah, I recognize this. Resistance. And I could tell you a million stories for that narrative too. And as that in turn unbinds and softens, as I listen with compassionate ears, a terror and a helplessness are felt and heard, echoing in the tombs of my soul. And as painful as they are, I soften and widen and there is love in my heart for this very familiar cascade of sankharas. And the progression from rejection to resistance to distress to terror and helplessness, by now, very familiar to me in this lifetime, and a vulnerability that often calls me to attend with kindness. I'm aware in the background that there is a lot of heartfulness here, loving, kind, friendly, welcoming attention, but it is not especially soulful for me. I am working with many tools and multiple ways of looking, but the soul of the suffering is seen rather one-dimensionally. Finding my bearings, sensing my body and my heart, I muster just enough discernment, to this whole mass of suffering, to discern and attend. Ah, this is Dukkha, that trustworthy lens of the Dhamma. And my body breathes out and begins to unbind a little more. Enough room now to orient more deliberately to my intention for soul-making. I inquired if anything in what was arising had anything soulful about it. And I saw that my questions felt soulful. My complete trust that there was more beauty here to be known. There was a faith that soul could be made with Dukkha. Seeing this soulfulness, this loving desire, ignited the fire further and a very visually vague but resonantly clear image started to arise, and it was divine. His title, his name, his designation came first, and not the visual. It was clear right away, and his um, it was clear right away. And his name was the image as much as the visual that later followed. He was the lame man. Not a lame man, but the lame man. Something so emphatic and eternal about him, and something so right about his place in the cosmos and his poise. He was serene, he was perfect, he was luminous, he was compelling and unfathomable, and he was lame. Even if naming someone after their disability sounded rather medieval to my modern mind, somehow his name was full of dimensions and resonances. He was beautiful, and I felt compelled to be with him. I love the lame man, but the compassionate aspect of the love for his lameness was not to the foreground, although his lameness was relevant to my love arising. I love that he knows many things, he knows his place as a soul, and he sees beauty, he sees the beauty of that place, which includes his lameness. I love that he loves me, personally, thoroughly. I love that he partakes of an eternal realm, always already happening just like this. I love that he knows about suffering and that he has a duty in relation to suffering and yet that also somehow his suffering is not the point either. It seems to both define him and is relevant to his place in the cosmos but it also doesn't go anywhere near defining him. And it is this curious blend that intrigues and ignites my soul. And then, in aside, I have had the good fortune of meeting souls. I once met a crippled beggar, in Bodgaya, with a tiny and painfully contorted body, with blissful light pouring radiantly out of his eyes that spoke to me of beyonds, and it was clear he knew that he was not his disability or his body. He knew that he was more than his particular fate that bound him. He inspired me, yes. He called me to spirit, yes. To the unbound, unbound beyonds. But the lame man knew something else as well. And I'm not saying the man in Bodhgai didn't know something else. But at that time, he called me to this bright, radiant beyonds with no bodies or faces or forms. The lame man knows something else too. He too inspires me to spirit, but he also attracts me to know the multiple meaningfulnesses that I intuit are made through his particular shape of body and soul. He calls me to soul, where my perception of the contingent and apparently bound realms meets my perception of a timeless, boundless, eternal. He knows the suffering, his lame leg. He knows it as him and as not him. He knows that it is not him, not who he is, and he knows that it is him. As not his, as more than his, and as his. And he is beautiful. He has assented to this fate, not as a victim, nor as a conqueror of that suffering. He has opened himself as an instrument of perception to his location as center of his cosmos, where the timeless and boundless meet the bounded and the timed. And he has assented to his fate, not accepted because that is kind or efficient or wise, but assented, nodded, yes. And that assent includes the acceptance of his heart, but it also aligns his whole soul with unfathomable dimensions of grace. And it is there that I see him. And when I ask him, do you have a duty for me? How can I serve you? At that point, the love and being love intensifies, and I assent to whatever task might be. Another day, Dukkha. Something feels wrong. It shouldn't be like this. There is enough mindfulness and discernment towards this whole mass of suffering that I practice again. This is Dukkha. Dukkha. With its connotations of Anatta in the background. Thankful for the Dhamma. And the tightness loosens just enough for me to remember my soul's devotion to beauty. And as I remember the soulful intention, the lame man arises once again. My soul swells with loving desire for more contact with him. The Eros stretches open my soul and more dimensions start to appear and he and I recognize each other in this place. There is something about the lame man that arrests my soul, stops me in my tracks. Something ceases, but it is not a cessation where I and the world dissolve. What ceases is the compulsive discharge of my holy fire to spin into making self-scapes, worlds of self and instead letting the fire blaze and illuminate worlds of soul. What was a self-scape has turned now into a soul-scape. And as my senses are stopped and I behold the lame man, the story and place of my suffering also shifts. Somehow my suffering is neither important nor unimportant. It is not real, nor is it unreal. Taken out of these constraining binaries, I find myself dwelling in a myth of unimaginable meaningfulness. I no longer believe that something is wrong or needs fixing, but it is not because the suffering has dissolved, and it does not need to. But I can no longer really say I am suffering or I am not suffering. I still feel the vulnerability in my chest, the the capacity for emotion not far away. I am still prone to a particular shape of patterning of self-rejection, resistance, distress, helplessness and terror predisposed to feeling unwanted and all the ensuing bindings that come when that vulnerability is grasped in that way. That sankhara can construct itself in a flash and a self-scape can be made who is bound to see through that lens and that is dukkha. I know that. And it calls me into love and wisdom and that brings release. But that's not the point today. Today I want soul more than I want release and as I recognize that Eros for more, the sensitivity of my vulnerability, the weak membrane in the wall of my heart and the echoes of the helplessness seem to me to be related to being able to perceive divinities. What is it that is being discovered and made at this so-called weak spot. Staying in relationship with the lame man, as his student, as his devotee, I assent, like him, to my weakness. This being prone to suffer in certain ways, not because it is efficient to accept or even wise. But because the nodding of my head to assent is a gesture that aligns me with something timeless and beautiful, and I want that. And in turning this selfscape into soulscape, I find myself in a myth of endless meaning and beauty. My impediment that shackles my foot to earth, which seemed to hinder me from making a perfect self, hinder me from flying forever into the realms of spirit is no longer a fetter to be unshackled for worldly or spiritual goals. My impediment is no longer a fetter to be unshackled for worldly or spiritual goals. So let's sit together.